Last time we saw in Genesis 11 that uh, God confused the languages of, of Noah's descendants here who are all centered together there in the land of Shinar, which is uh, probably in Iraq, not far from Babylon. And so following that confusion of language there at the Tower of Babel, uh, the people groups left that plain of Mesopotamia and they swarmed out, kind of like, I can just picture uh, somebody, uh, I think it was last week, somebody found, a, uh, did you see on the news a huge swarm of, of was it, I can't remember, wasps or bees now, somewhere down by Rotorua. It was like over a million. This was huge, over a million in this one nest. Anyway, it's massive. Just to, but just imagine going up to that and, and uh, you know, you stick your, put a stick into that and just stir them up and, what do you think is going to happen? Well, besides you getting stung, they're going to, you know, they're going to be a little agitated, come out, and you know, there's going to be a, a a big, big bunch of activity going on. Well, that's that's kind of what God has done here, right? They're all they're all kind of congregated in this one nest, and God's sticking the the stick into that that beehive, and and now they're just swarming out, and and they just kind of going their their separate ways, and they push one another. East and west and north and south. And as they went, sadly, though, they took their Babylonian hearts with them. Uh, Their hearts didn't change. Uh, They scattered. And uh, mostly in their their scattering, they took their idolatrous pagan hearts and ways with them. But having said that, and by the way, it it doesn't matter if they were descendants of whichever one of Noah's sons, whether it was Sham, Ham, or Japheth. It didn't matter in which direction they went. They took their idolaters' hearts with them. Now, of course, there were some exceptions, because uh, around this time, if you're not familiar, you know, Job, uh, the book of Job before Psalms there, Job was living around this time period, and, and God described Job as a blameless and upright man, a man who feared God and loved God. So, there, of course, there were people like Job around this time, but on the whole, there were They were idolatrous pagans spreading around the world. But the even though the idolatry was widespread and and, and we got the people covering the earth with darkness, we see that Babel concluded here with the scattered human race separated from God. And some people, if if you don't know your Bibles and you don't know how the Bible uh, goes along here. You might, some people might look at this and become very discouraged, like God forgot His promise in Genesis 3.15. That's what some people might think. Don't, don't look at that yet, by the way. <laughs> we'll get there in a moment. But some people might forget Genesis 3.15, right? D- didn't God say that, that there's going to come somebody at some point in time who's going to crush the head of Satan? Some people look at human history here and think, uh, I think God forgot what he said. No, he hasn't forgotten. And this is one of the points of these genealogies, showing us that uh, God is keeping his promise. He's a very gracious God, giving us even though uh, some wonderful blessing here, even though we don't deserve it. So we come to Genesis 11 here, another genealogy. And in this one, it's going to take us from uh, Noah's son Shem, all the way to Abram. And it's going to reveal to us how God 
took various steps to save a people. And he's going to bring a particular people group out of these idolatrous pagans, and, and, and he's going to raise up his covenant people and preserve a particular line, all leading up to the one through Abraham who would bless the entire earth. Of course, you know I'm talking about Jesus, right? How does he do this? He preserves the line of Shem through one man. And and again, he does it through one man's faith. Faith is crucial as we look at this genealogy yet again. And so let's read the words of the living God coming from Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. Genesis 11, verse 10. says, These are the generations of Shem. Remember, Shem's one of the descendants here of Noah. So these are generations of Shem, focusing in on Shem's line here. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. Ru lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. A lot of names, a lot of days. (laughs) What's it all mean? Why is it here? Well, I want you to notice, as with all the Old Testament narratives, God wants you to know something about himself. Don't lose sight of the fact, as, as you read this, that God is gracious. God is fulfilling his promises. You're, you're also seeing a faithful, covenant-keeping God doing what he promised 
he was going to do in Genesis 3.15. So we're going to look at the, as it's building up to Abraham here, because he, he's, he's the focus of attention in chapter 12. We're going to focus in on the genealogy of Father Abraham. We're also going to look at the faith of Father Abraham. There's your two main points for today. So we, we see here through, uh, even though humanity had become idolatrous at this point, God's promised blessing on these descendants of Shem. By the way, the Shem are the Semitic peoples. We see that God's promises still remained. So, the human author the Holy Spirit's using here is Moses, and Moses is recording this genealogy of Shem. And uh, you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, it, it's meant to be a sort of a match to the earlier genealogy we saw in chapter 5, which shows us the line of Seth. And it's interesting, you, if you compare chapter 11 with chapter 5, uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. There's ten generations from Adam's son Seth to Noah. By the way, God loves numbers for some reason. He's an ordered God. Uh, you know, numbers like threes and sevens and tens, for example, are very key in the Bible, but... Uh, here, here in chapter 11, we also have ten generations. In this case, though, it's extending from Noah's son Shem to Abraham. So it's building to chapter 11, or 12. Now the two parallel genealogies here together record a total of 20 generations. Show us how did we get from Father Adam, the first human man that God created, how did we get from Adam, and how did we get to Abraham. Well, it's good that we have this record here, then, don't we? And so as you read this genealogy, did you notice there's some differences? One of the, the most notable differences is the absence of a particular phrase that we saw over and over again in chapter 5, the phrase, and he died. Did you notice that? And he died. So this person fathers this person, and he died, and he died, and did you notice they all died? Well, except for Enoch. They all died, and it occurs eight times in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is stressing that death pre- pre- prevailed upon the human race because of sin. And, but you get a different atmosphere here as you read this genealogy in chapter 11. Uh, some have said it, it, it stresses this movement away from death, and it's moving toward the promise It's moving toward the Abrahamic covenant of chapter 12. It's stressing life, not death. It's it's stressing this expansion. Well, the other obvious difference between the genealogies is, did you notice there's a shrinking lifespan, very quickly shrinking lifespan going on here uh, during the patriarchal period after the flood? Uh, the 438 years of of uh, our Foxod's life is only two-thirds of his father Shem. Shem lived, what, what like some 600 years. Peleg's 239 years is only about half of his father. Why is that? Well, oh, and by the way, Nahor, Nahor lives to be 138 the uh, very 
young age of 138. <laughs> and it's interesting because we read earlier back in chapter 6 that God had, had predicted the shortening of man's lifespan to be to around the 120-year mark. And so we see that finally being realized. And, and if you want to read interesting articles on that, go to creation.com or Answers in Genesis. You'll get uh, various theories and ideas on and why mankind went from, what, you got Methuselah, the oldest guy, Methuselah, living 969 years, so now, now we got what we have today. Why is that? Well, basically it comes down to mankind's sin. This is a short answer. Uh, sin has diminished our longevity. So why, that's why there's this long, rapid drop. Some think that because of sin, now we have lots of mutations, and the mutations keep adding on to each other, and, and we're not getting better. In fact, human history showing us we're getting worse. We're getting worse. But the other thing this, this shows us, that at the same time we see uh, that mankind's sin is diminished here in his longevity, the genealogy is testifying to this rising optimism because there's, there's, there is no phrase here in chapter 11 that says, and he died, and he died, and he died. That phrase is gone. It talks about who they fathered and how long they lived, but no mention of when they died. And so the genealogy is moving away from death to a hope. Yes, death is an enemy, but it's not the ultimate enemy. Death has been conquered. There is hope. Shem's genealogy here is standing as a bridge of hope into this, this new era where we're looking for the, the one to come. And the midpoint in the dividing line of Shem's genealogy here is the birth of Peleg, by the way, in verse 16, uh, mentions Eber, who lived 34 years, and he fathers Peleg. And so Peleg's op- occupying this place number five in a genealogy of ten generations. So he's in the middle. And it's going all the way, from, remember, from Shem to Abraham. And those five represent a very concise review of Shem's genealogy as it was given there back in chapter 10 in that table of nations. Uh, except that there's the the genealogy here that also includes uh, Peleg's brother, Joktan, and his descendants. But it's interesting here in chapter 11, Joktan is is not mentioned. And I was trying to figure out, well, why is Joktan not mentioned? But he's mentioned there earlier. Uh, Peleg's descendants are mentioned, uh, and they're listed all the way to Abram, as you could you probably saw earlier as the uh, the genealogy was up on the screen there. So you'll see in the genealogy of Shem there, starting all the way at the top, Noah's son, Shem. If you follow the middle, bold part there, you eventually get to Eber Peleg. And then you follow him all the way down, you eventually get to Abraham down there. So why is that? Can't remember. Yeah, you'll see you see Joktan there on the left. Um, and some have said that uh, the, the reason is, uh, or the answer is, that Joktan's line is the one that leads to the Tower of Babel. But you have Peleg's line, uh, resulting eventually getting to Abraham, who of course is the hope of God's people. 
A commentator by the name of Ken Matthews says this. This highlights the difference in the two inner branches of the Semite family. One leading to disgrace and the other to grace. One leads to grace. We see grace coming through Abraham. But we also should note that, as I think I said in a previous message, Eber, who is the father of Peleg, uh, very prominent in the genealogy. He's the ancestor of the Hebrews. Uh, the name Hebrew actually comes from Eber. And it's also significant that Eber is uh, the 14th from Adam. So you get 2 times 7. Abraham is the 7th from Eber. <laughs> so all those numbers aren't coincidences, I don't think. But and So that makes Adam the, uh, you know, he's the, the 21st descendant from Adam then. Three times seven, right? And of course, uh, some have suggested all of that is is uh, showing the perfection of God's plan. This is no accident. God has it all planned out. He's working out His plan. You see a sovereign God overruling in His creation. Yeah, it might appear like things get out of control at times with Tower of Babel stuff and so forth. But no, God God is He's working out His divine plan. But we come to the second half of the genealogy here. extends from Peleg to Abram, places Abram only five generations, by the way, from Babel. And I say that because the Tower of Babel, remember we said earlier, was, uh, was during the time of Peleg. It was Peleg's time. In his days, the earth was divided, chapter 10 says. And so, that's significant. So just just five generations away from that. It's also significant. Uh, names always mean something in the Bible. Abram means he is exalted as to his father, uh, as in noble birth is the idea. Or uh, some have said may, maybe more likely it means uh, the father, God, is exalted. And, of course, God changed Abram's name. You know he's going to change his name eventually. I hope you know this. He's going to change it to Abraham, which means father of many nations. He'll do that in chapter 17. So that shows hope. We can see that hope is abounding even here at the conclusion of genealogies, which, sadly, some preachers have said should never be preached. Moses has shown that God's promise to Eve of a seed who's going to crush the head of the snake could not be stopped, could not be thwarted, despite all of that confusion at the Tower of the Babel. Despite all this scattering of the nations, God is still working out His plan. And even though the seed was scattered from from Babel there, God had preserved ten great men. You can see it in the genealogy there. Ten great men, all the way from Noah to Abram. And by the way, furthermore, this this line of Peleg there brought grace in the place of Joktan's line of disgrace. And we we ought to praise God for His grace. Praise God for His faithfulness, a covenant promise-keeping God. He's doing what he said he was going to do. And so God enables Abram to believe. God calls Abram, and that's the end of chapter 11 here. We see the faith, sorry, the faith of 
father Abraham. But we, we, we also need to recognize the background of Abraham and his family to understand Abraham's family is not, there, there's nothing special about them. God didn't call Abraham because he's somehow superior in, in some way than all the other people of the world. No, that's not it at all. Nothing superior about him. In fact, Abraham's background is pagan. Just pagan. And, and you read this list, and if you know anything about these people, you'd say, wow, what a, what a dysfunctional family. <laughs> like, like all families, by the way, domestic complications developed. Uh, that's normal for families because of sin. And uh, it, it's implicit in, the, uh, in this list here of who married who. <laughs> all these generations of Terah, starting in cha- uh, verse 27. Let me just mention a few of them, because it says that Haran fathered Lot. What do we know about Lot? Well, he's, he's the nephew of Abraham, who gives Abraham a lot of headache and a lot of worry. Uh, we're going to read about him in, in uh, future passages here in Scripture. Uh, Nahor married Milcah, his niece, the, who is the orphan daughter of his departed brother Haran. Oh, you can see the uh, the family tree of Terah there. By the way, notice the red ones. The one in, in red there are particular to take note of coming all the way down, and eventually you get to Judah, and I'll mention that one in a moment. But but uh, first of all, notice uh, Nahor, he, he, you know, so he marries Milcah. And uh, we learn two things about Abraham's wife Sarai, by the way. Uh, the Bible here specifically mentions, first of all, uh, an extraordinary omission of any information about her being the daughter of Terah. Uh, and of course, if she's the, since she is the daughter of Terah, that makes Sarai the half-sister of Abraham. And Abraham married Sarai. Why is that not all that stuff mentioned here? Well, I don't know, I can't help but wonder, is, is Moses, of course he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I think he's withholding the information, so he's not ruining the suspense in the story that's going to come later in Genesis. Actually, in chapter 20, uh, we'll find out that Abraham, he's trying to save his own skin, he's trying to save himself from death, and he doesn't reveal to Abimelech that Sarai, his wife, is actually also his half-sister. The other thing we learn in this text here is that Sarai was barren. In other words, her her womb uh, was not able to have children at this time. And of course, that sets up this huge challenge that's going to come to Abraham and and his faith. Uh, God changes his name to the father of many nations, but yet he's old and doesn't have any children. Well, what is going on there? Has God, has God gone crazy, or is he not able to keep his promises? What's, what's, what's all that about? Well, well, we'll learn about that as well. But uh, th- this challenge of barrenness in the womb is going to occur many times in the book of Genesis with the matriarchs, for example, Rebecca and Rachel. God also closes their womb so they don't have children. But then, of course, he's, he's able to open the womb to allow these women to have children later on. But notice in this 
this, this next genealogy here, I just want to point out to you, don't lose sight of the big picture, because in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says it's all about him. It's all about him, including the Genesis. And so it's important that we not forget that even in the genealogies, it's pointing us to Christ. So do you see the lineage of Jesus Christ coming from Terah, well, of course, all the way going back to Adam, but notice, follow the, the green stars, and you'll get Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then come way over here, Jacob's, one of his wives, Leah, who eventually has a son named Judah. And if you know your Bible, who comes from Judah? The tribe of Judah, you get Jesus Christ. So there you go. You get the family tree coming to Jesus Christ. That's one reason that's in your Bible. Don't lose sight of those important points there in the genealogies, all pointing to Christ. Now, most important here is we, we understand that at, at this particular time, Terah's family were moon worshipers. That's something I learned. They're moon worshipers because they're, let me tell you why, they're residing in the, in the center of moon worship. Notice the Bible mentions they live in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, in Ur of the Chaldeans, it's a, a leading center of lunar religion, lunar being the moon. The city was dominated by a three-stage ziggurat. Uh, if you go to Google Images, you can find what's left of the ziggurat, still there. But anyway, the, so as far as we know, according to uh, archaeologists so far, each stage had different colors of the ziggurat at the top level of the ziggurat. Here's someone's impression of what it may have looked like. But at the top, it was probably a silver color. There was one room shrine at the top of the ziggurat. And in this case, it was a shrine to Nana. Nana is the moon god. And there was a royal cemetery. There still is a royal cemetery right next to the ziggurat of Ur. And they found, by the way, evidence of uh, in those ritual burials of human sacrifices to the moon god Nana. And so this is the environment that uh, Abraham is born into and grew up in. This is Abraham's family. He, he's there. He's all a part of this. And, and Scripture doesn't gloss over this. Scripture's not trying to hide this. And, and in fact, if, if you have any doubt that this was Abraham's context in Ur of the Chaldeans, I want you to see what Scripture itself says. Because in Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, look what it says. Joshua says to all the people, uh, that's the people of Israel, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham uh, and of Nor uh, Nahor, they served other gods. Other gods. So they're pagans. They're, they're idolatrous pagans. Particularly in Ur, they would have worshipped the moon. So Abraham's family, probably including Abraham himself, were polytheistic idolaters. In other words, poly meaning many. Worship of many gods, not just the moon. And you can also see this, by the way, in the very names of their families, uh, their family members. For example, their, their names just come out uh, and show that they worship the moon. 
I'll put some of these names up on the screen here for you. For example, uh, Abraham's father was Terah. Well, the, the, the English word Terah comes from the word Yerha, which means lunar month. Sarai, Abraham's wife, is uh, the equivalent of the word, I don't know how you say these names, by the way, but uh, something like Seratu, who was actually the wife of the moon god, Sin. And then you have another one of Abraham's family members, Milka, is the same as the goddess Melkatu, who was the daughter of the moon god. This is, this is Abraham's family. This is the environment that he's growing up in. This is the people group whom God is going to call. Nothing special about these people. And so as a moon worshiper, you need to recognize that Abraham, just like everybody else in Ur, probably at one point, at least at one point in their life, had probably stood on top of that ziggurat there in Ur, and as a part of that, they would uh, they would gaze at the stars, gaze at the moon, do all their ritual, um, idolatrous practices up there, offer their worship to the moon god Sin. Interesting, isn't it interesting? He's called Sin. I, I find that ironic. But anyway, uh, did Abraham witness human sacrifices up there on top of the ziggurat? Maybe. I don't know. Could he have wondered, is there something out there greater than the moon? Is there someone, something that created that moon? Is there someone greater than the moon? I'm worshiping the moon god, but is there something, someone greater? I can't help but wonder if he did, as he's looking up in the night sky at the moon. And in the midst of this environment, God called Abraham. And so the final verses here of Genesis 11 record a family move. And by the way, if we only had these verses, you, you might conclude that Terah moved his family to Haran when, uh, or sorry, to Haran where he lived for, for some period of time, and then uh, Terah dies at the age of 205. And then at that point, some, after his father dies, that God calls Abraham. Some people think that way. But I want you to, to see here, that neither Genesis nor the rest of your Bible actually shows that to be the case. But rather, it was, it was actually while Abraham is right there in the center of moon worship in Ur of the Chaldeans that he is called of God. And so when God later affirmed his covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, God says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. By the way, there's a very clear account. I'll put it on the screen here. A very clear account of Abraham's call while he's still in Ur. And, and, and this account is coming from Stephen's message, his sermon, while he's given his defense before the religious council of Israel called the Sanhedrin. Look what Stephen says to the religious council of Israel. He says, in Acts chapter 7, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when? When he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, 
go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Is that clear? All doubt should be removed, I hope, at this point. God says he calls him when he's living in Ur. He's still a polytheistic pagan idolater. A false God worshiper at this point. And so the point here is that here he is, he's in the he's in Ur, and and God calls Abraham. Abram sees the glory of God somehow. He hears God. God tells him to depart and go to this land that God's going to show him. Abraham doesn't know where he's going, and God says, I'll tell you when I, when you get there. And some people in their right minds would say, that's, that's crazy, <laughs> right? But what does Abraham do? Abraham, being in this patriarchal society, remember the, you know, the patriarchs uh, had, had great authority during this time. But anyway, he, he somehow convinces his father, Terah, to, to leave and actually come with him, uproot the whole family, go with him. So they start going to the promised land. Uh, as, we, as we just read, they eventually get to Haran. And for whatever reason, Terah, Abraham's father, says, Nah, I've gone far enough. I like this place. I'm staying right here. Haran's a nice place. I'm staying right here. I'm not going any farther. So what does Abraham do? Well, he's very dutiful to his father. He stays there with his father until his father dies. And then after that, God sends him on to the promised land. Now, we say all this to underline that Abraham's obedience was a huge act of faith. And that's why we're going to see him in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Yes, he was an unbeliever. He was, you might call him a pagan. And at this time, he's, he's advanced in years. He was prosperous, and he settles in this pagan world here. He was the only one in his culture, as far as we know, who heard God's word. But on the basis of hearing God's word alone, what does he do? He risks everything to go and follow God. None of us have ever done anything comparable to this, as far as I know. He risked everything. We trivialize this sometimes as if we imagine that, uh, that we have understood this or experienced this or we can empathize with this. But happily, we, we know the answer because the author of Hebrews chose to use Abraham as an illustration as he's defining and showing us what faith looks like. By the way, Hebrews defines or, or describes faith this way. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith, I'll put it on the screen here for you, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice the, the parts of faith. This is crucial. See, number one, biblical faith possesses a future certainty. So Abraham is not just having a, a blind leap in the dark, 
Like some people do, like they, they like to describe faith as if it's a blind leap into nothingness. Oh no. Yeah, he's leaving his family, his country, and everything that he knows and is familiar with. He's going somewhere where God hasn't even told him where it is yet. But it's not a blind leap. He's trusting in this God who he doesn't even know that well. But nevertheless, he's trusting, he's believing. His faith is in God. So it is, there is a future certainty here. It is the assurance of things hoped for. But notice it's, it's joined or coupled with a visual certainty. Notice it is also the conviction of things not seen. God enables people to see things, even though they haven't seen it with their eyes. It's like, it's like Abraham was able to see the promised land, even though he hadn't got there yet. It, it was so real to him, he's willing to step out and, and do what God wanted him to do. So my friends, we need to recognize here, faith produces a, dynam- a dynamic certainty that gives the reality of, a, of an actual existence, and, and therefore you're now able to hope for those things that have a real existence. Therefore, when Abraham heard God's call, he became certain that God would lead him to the promised land. And so he steps out by faith. What's the result? Well, the result in Abram was here in immediate obedience. That is the right response, by the way. Immediate obedience. Abram's obedience was an outward evidence of an inward faith. As James says, James says, show me your faith by your works. Right? The outward stuff shows what's really going on inside us. His obedience was so quick. Uh, some have said it seems like, uh, like God's command is still ringing in his ears, and here he, he's out of there. Right? And it's not until later that his destination is actually revealed to him. So what does faith do? By the way, faith does something. Faith doesn't just believe. Faith acts. Faith does something. Faith steps out. Faith and obedience, by the way, are inseparable in our relationship with God. You can't claim to have faith and no obedience. You can't claim to obey and not have faith either. They, they, go, they go hand in hand. They, they're together. They're intertwined. They're inseparable. And and you and I must never imagine that we have faith if we do not obey God. You don't. Because faith acts. Faith does something. When you believe God, you do something. Now here's the beautiful thing in Genesis. As we, we, we come to the end of chapter 11. The two greatest persons of ancient history were Noah and Abram. That's what Genesis is showing us. Two greatest persons in ancient history were Noah and Abram. And both of these guys, yes, they're sinners. We see their sin. It's plain evident for us to see. But nevertheless, they were still models of faith. They were models of faith. And that's why they're mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. So let me, let me mention them here, what Hebrews says about these guys. Here's what Hebrews says about Noah in chapter 11, verse Seven. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark 
for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Of Abram, here's what Hebrews 11 says, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. How did he respond? It says, he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, both men's faith did something. The faith produced amazing obedience. Uh, we, we see what, I think four times we read in Genesis, the Bible says that Noah did all that God commanded him. And so what's the point of that? The Genesis text emphasizes that four times to show what does faith do? Faith acts. We also see Abraham doing the same. Abraham immediately obeyed and went, the Bible says, according to Hebrews. And so thus we see that both of these men were used to effect salvation for others. And how did that happen? It happened by their faith. God used their faith. Noah's faith brought salvation for his family. <laughs> Praise God, he, he believed God. Because otherwise there would be no human race here. It, it preserved the promise of the seed of Eve. The one who would come and crush the head of the serpents. Abram's faith created a whole new people. A covenant people. We call them Israel. The way Abram's faith began in Ur is the way it continued. Later it was the same faith by which he received his righteousness. And faith doesn't earn righteousness, by the way. You, do you understand that? Your faith doesn't earn you a right standing with God. Faith does not earn that righteousness, but it does receive the righteousness. Faith is that instrument, if you will, by which we receive the righteousness that God gives to you. You don't believe me? Look what uh, the Bible even says here in chapter 15, Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, now this is talking about Abraham, and it says, He believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So you see how that happens? How How is... Abraham declared right with God by faith alone. Not, not works, but through his faith. It's this instrument, the vehicle, the, the conduit, if you will, through which God is working in Abraham's life. So my friends, there's a vital lesson for us to learn here. Number one, don't forget the theme, God is gracious. God is gracious. God, God is doing for for mankind which they cannot do for themselves he's providing for them they're a mess they continually keep messing up <laughs> they are sinful wicked people and, and we see this over and over again but god god just keep faithfully keeping his promises bestowing upon mankind stuff they do not deserve and we're going to see him call what does he do? He calls out of a polytheistic, idolatrous, pagan people a man whom he's going to use to make a great nation we call Israel. But we need to believe the word of the Lord. 
just as people in Scripture like Noah and Abraham did. We need to believe the word of the Lord. Do you? Do you? Is your faith great enough where God says, Hey, uproot you and your family. I want you to go to a different country and serve me somewhere else. Is your faith great enough to say, Yes, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I will do it. We need to believe God's future promises. Not all of God's promises have been fulfilled yet. There are still promises to be fulfilled, particularly the ones I, I enjoy about Christ's second coming and, and, and the eternal state and things of heaven and so forth. Do you believe those? The God who fulfilled all the other promises in Scripture is the same God who's going to fulfill future promises. We need to believe those. We need to enjoy the promises now because you believe in the God who has made promises. You believe in a God who is a covenant-keeping, promising God. And because we do, may we obey every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not just the ones we see here. But when God makes statements and He says stuff in His Word, may God enable you to have this faith, to believe, and to act. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us these genealogies. Thank You for pointing to Christ. May we not lose sight of Christ. May we recognize, as even Jesus Himself said, it's all about Him. The stuff in the law, the stuff in the prophets, the stuff in the writings, the, the prophetic part of Scripture, the uh, sorry, the poem part of Scripture. May we recognize it's about Christ. May we love Christ. May we look forward to His second coming. And we are thankful that You're a covenant promise-keeping God who is gracious and faithful. May we know You. May we believe You. May we live as if we do believe that You are gracious and faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.